Okay, so um, what I've noticed as I get older and as other people get older, it takes more and more to cause us to wonder, right? To be in awe. So if I took my son, Myron, he's three. If I took him for his birthday up to the Portland Zoo and we walk by the bears and I'm like, Myron, look at the bears. What's Myron gonna do? Whoa, man, look at that bear, how awesome. All right, now if I took Charity to the Portland Zoo and we walked by the bears and I say, hey, look at that. She's gonna be like, it's a bear. We're at the zoo, what did you expect? Why did you bring me here for my birthday? What am I doing, right? Because there's something that happens to us. Over the course of time, we begin to lose like the awe. So what I want to try to do in Genesis, because most people are familiar with this book, is I want to help recover some of the awe that this book is supposed to give to us. Like, wow, that's incredible. And I think fundamentally, you have to have this understanding of the book. And too often it's, it's, we define, especially Genesis one like this, how the cosmos was created by God. I say that's incorrect. Because what happens when you say that is it becomes God did this in the past. God is almost the deist that has wound up the clock and set it and now it does its own thing. So I want us to think about Genesis this way in Genesis 1, especially, it's this. It's the cosmos is God's creation. God is still active. He is not done. He launched it in chapter 1. It is the beginning of the story of creation. But God still has care and involvement and continues. And that just little nuance changes us from this audience that wants to be entertained by Genesis to partners who say, I get to assist in this work of creation. I get to be part of the verse two, taking chaos, partnering with God's spirit and creating order. And that's what I want us to do, okay? So I have also said this about Genesis. I did this on Sunday, the first Sunday, that there is underneath, I think, this story, there's a face value, but there's also a message that would have been much more obvious to some ex-slaves 3,500 years ago, but there's this underlying message that really is important. So I'll try to explain it from a little bit different direction. If I told you the story of Goldilocks and the three bears, what's that story about? Boring. Boring. That's a good one, right? It's just a girl, a house, and three bears, right? But that story has a message that when parents used to tell that story to their kids, there was, an, uh, there was a fundamental message they were trying to get across. You know what it was? Don't go in someone else's house or you'll get eaten. <laughs> Literally, that was it. Don't go in other people's houses. It's dangerous for you to go in somebody else's house, right? So it seems like this, oh, this, this story, not very cute really because she gets eaten in the real one, but it actually has a much more important message. Well, that's the same in Genesis. You can be like, oh, it's... It's a girl and three bears. No, there is a message God's getting across to these ex-slaves that were still thinking about, should we go back to Egypt? Or their children that were asking, should we really go into the promised land and try to take on these giants? 
That's the big message he's trying to get across to those people. All right, so let's jump in. Verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you've been here for any of the Genesis introduction messages, my take on Genesis, one verse one is this. God has, in verse one, created the entire universe. Our solar system, the planet, the moon, the sun. It's all done in verse one. At some point in the distant past, the Bible does not give us the date that it was done. It doesn't tell us when. It's really telling us who did it, God. And the message that's echoed from here all the way through to the end of the Bible is God is the creator. No one else creates. God alone creates. So it declares who did it. And the way that God does it is there's no epic battle. You read these old kind of myths about creation and it's like this God fought this God and tore at his entrails and his heart landed and became our home and it became an island and out of that heart, the blood became people, right? There's all this kind of battle. You do not see any of that. It's very succinct. It's very tight. It's very sparse. And so when you see, I believe in the Bible, the term heavens and earth, it's speaking of the totality of the universe, right? Not just heaven and earth, but the two words combined mean more. You know that how that happens? Like uh, you can't deconstruct those and take those words apart separately. And like, well, he created the heaven, which is the sky, and then this planet. The term heaven and earth in the Bible means everything. You can look at Jeremiah 10, 11, Isaiah 44, 24, everything, right? It's like rap sheet. What does rap sheet mean? Is it music plus a piece of paper? No, it's a record of all you've done wrong that the police have, right? It's your rap sheet, all right? What's butterfly? Is it what you do when the cat jumps on the counter and you don't want it on the counter? Do you let some butterfly? No, it's an animal. So it's the same thing. When the Bible uses this term heaven and earth, it's saying the known cosmos. So in verse one of Genesis, God has created everything. It's a pre Atomic history. We know from verse two, there's already water. I believe we know from the Bible that somewhere in here, Satan revolts against heaven and is cast down. Uh, Jesus talks about that in Luke chapter 10. So we know that's happened prior to this. But I also believe at this point, there are dinosaurs, there's animals, there's stuff on earth. So that's all I personally believe here in verse one, that's all happened. And the important point that God's making is, I created it. So there's a great story about probably the biggest preacher 150 years ago in America. His name was Henry Beecher, the Reverend Beecher. And he had a good friend named Robert Ingersoll, who was the leading atheist of the day. And they were buddies, which I really liked that. And they would talk to each other and sharpen each other. And Robert Ingersoll was a really incredible communicator of Darwinism because that was the big thing 150 years ago. And then Henry Beecher is a really good communicator of creation and, and what we believe. And there was a time that Ingersoll went to visit Beecher in his study. And he came into his study and 
uh, the Reverend Beecher had this globe of the earth and some stars and some constellations that were kind of dangling around it. Just beautiful. And Ingersoll comes in, he's like, wow, that is a great globe. That is beautiful. And so Reverend Beecher says, oh, thank you. And he says, well, who made that? To which Mr. Beecher, Reverend Beecher said, what do you mean who made it? Just one day it appeared there. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's verse one. It didn't just appear there. God creates. The word here, create, it's bara in the Hebrew. Every time it's used, it always speaks of divine activity. It's never used for humans. It's never used for any other creative order. It is always a divine thing. God, out of nothing, creates the universe. That, to me, is verse one. And so here's what this begins to tell us. Like any good book, I'm all using an analogy here, and this is only an analogy. I'm not saying anything more than this is an analogy. When you read a fairy tale, how does it begin? Once upon a time, right? And then when you finish a fairy tale, how does it end? And they live happily ever after, right? That is the, the two things that kind of encapsulate a fairy tale. Uh, once upon a time, uh, and then it ends with, and then they lived happily ever after. What you have in Genesis 1-1 is God saying, there is a beginning and I'm creating a heaven and the earth. And because there is a beginning, there's also going to be a, I'm not gonna call it an ending. I'm gonna call it a consummation. That this thing is at some point, God says, okay, it's accomplished. I've accomplished what I want to accomplish. Well, what does God want to accomplish? We'll get that in Genesis. And what you see is God's accomplishment echoes verse one. So you have the book of Isaiah, which talks a lot about end times. In Isaiah 65, it says this, verse 17, that there is coming a new heaven and a new earth. Ever heard that term before? You should. Because Revelation, the final book in our Bible, in Revelation 21, verse one, John gets a vision way down the tunnel of time. And what does he see? I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That is God's closing statement on this chapter on the universe. So there is a beginning, heaven and earth created, and then it's gonna fulfill its life. And then there's coming a end to this thing, a consummation of it, new heaven, new earth. And then we, we launch into a new chapter, all right? So just like any great, great, great book, the Bible is telling us, here's how it works. Beginning, end. All right. So verse two, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, if you were here for the first Sunday when I dove into Genesis, we looked at this verse quite a bit. And when you see the word earth here, very often in our minds, 21st century, when we see the word earth, what do we think of? The blue planet hanging out in our solar system, right? That's immediately what comes to mind. The Hebrew actually has a better word when you think about planet, and it's the Hebrew word teleb. Tabel, excuse me. The word right here, translated earth, is ha-adits. If you want to know a Hebrew word, that's one to remember. 
It simply means land. It is most frequently used when it speaks of the promised land. That is its primary usage from Genesis to Malachi. Ha'adetz is the promised land. There are many Bible scholars that believe what God is doing right here happens in the promised land. Now, you don't have to say that, but some people think that. So this is the Ha'adetz, the land. And I said on Sunday, two Sundays ago, it's unfinished. It's without form. It's void. There's darkness and there's this deep water on it. So this land, it's not fit for humans. It's actually a dangerous, dangerous land. And so I made the comparison. It's not a good place to live like Wolf Creek. And I got in trouble for that. (laughs) I had someone say, what's wrong with Wolf Creek? It's beautiful. I said, Wolf Creek is beautiful. It is totally beautiful. I said, why? Do you live there? And she said, I used to live there. I said, why don't you live there anymore? (laughs) Because it's dangerous, right? (laughs) Oh man, I get in trouble for everything. But it's true, it's kind of a little bit dangerous out there. So that's this land, it's the Ha'adit. It has a little bit of like, okay, it's a dangerous land. So what's gonna happen? How is this dangerous, formless, void, dark, deep place going to be changed, all right? So here's what happens really in these next two chapters. It's as if, have you ever been on Google Earth and you start to zoom in and it's kind of a little bit fuzzy and then it gets clear and then it gets fuzzy and you keep zooming in closer and closer? That's really what happens here. It starts wide, heavens and earth, cosmos. And then it, then it focuses down to the ha audits. And then it focuses down to this place called Eden, which is in the Ha'adetz. And then it focuses down to a garden that's in Eden, which is in the Ha'adetz, which is in the new heavens and new earth. And then lastly, it focuses down on the Imago Dei, humanity. Chapter two is all about Adam and Eve. So it's like God just getting closer and closer and closer and closer. And the overriding idea that you have to get in chapters one and two, it's real simple. God is creating a great place for humans to live. And it is not from non-existence, nothing to something, because we already know there's the deep there. We actually already know there's land, we'll see that, because God brings the land out of the deep. He doesn't create it, he he brings it out. So we already know there's components to it. What God is doing is he's ordering it and he's forming it in such a way that humans can now flourish and dwell in this land. And then finally, it zooms in on chapter two, and you see God's great care for humans. Because God looks at Adam by himself in the garden, what does he say? That's not good. It's not good for him to be alone. He needs love, right? That's really it. That God ultimately really cares about humans doing well. This, This creation of mine, Adam, he needs love. So chapter two, it's like this. You ever go out to eat or go to a a couple's house for the first time that you've just met them and you have dinner? What do you always ask after you eat dinner about the couple? So how'd you guys meet, right? That's what I always do. So how did you guys meet? That's chapter two. Adam and Eve, how'd you guys meet? Well, I fell asleep and, and... Right? I woke up and my side just was killing me. I don't know what happened to me. I think someone stole my kidney. And then I looked at him and I'm like, whoa, man, right? That's the story. I mean, it's brilliant. I love it. It's just like what we do. 
So that's really, it's just this kind of zooming in closer and closer and closer, and it culminates in relationship. God in relationship with Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve in relationship with each other. Because Jesus will summarize what life is about by saying, you love God and you love people. That's what life is about. And you see that in paradise in chapter two. It's right there. Because here's what you know about love. It's the most powerful thing. Some people will die for truth, few people. Almost everyone will die for love, for their spouse, for their kids. You'll all die for love. So it culminates in that. It's just brilliant. All right, so that's verse two. It's formless, it's void. And out of this kind of, this turmoil, this, this not good condition, God begins to order it so that it is fit for humans. So the first thing he does is verse three. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. My view the sun's already there. So it's not a problem now for light to be there and light to do what it's going to do. Now, why was it dark then? I don't know. Maybe there's a mist. Maybe there's a cloud. Maybe the earth didn't rotate before that point. I don't know. All that is conjecture. All I know is this. Verse two says it's dark. And verse three, God says, it's gonna be light now on the hot audits and light begins to shine into the ha audits. And now you can see. So now it becomes a place that is a little bit more hospitable, okay? So we can start conjecturing about, well, how did light get there? Was it the spin of the planet? Was Chandler's wobble? Was it the magnetic field? What was it? Was there a mist? I don't know. All I know is verse two says it's dark. And then in verse three, God says there's light and light shines on the ha audits. Any more than that, you get into conjecture, and I like conjecture, and I'll make conjecture as long as I tell people, I'm now going beyond the text, and now I'm telling you what I think about this. So basic is, it was dark, verse two, and then God says there's light, and somehow God changes atmosphere, twist, something like that, conjecture, so now that light shines on this one spot called the ha audits, all right? So then, verse four, and God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. If you do not have the sun in verses four and five, in day one, the morning evening thing becomes very like, okay, what is this? How do you have morning? How do you have evening? How do you have this rhythm if the sun doesn't show up until verse 14? And we'll do a bunch of work on verse 14 on what it means. For, for my side, no problem. The sun is now doing what the sun should be doing, shining during the day, dark at night. And you're gonna see a theme in Genesis 1. There's lots of separating, right? Heavens are separated from the earth. Land is separated from the sea. Uh, male and female are separated in chapter 2. Uh, light is separated from darkness. Day is separated from night. There's God just ordering and separating all the way through this book. So here's what God's doing. We need day and night. Do you know that? Humans require nighttime. We require sleep. Like it's in our very DNA. We require it. No one is exactly sure why. 
Um, you can know how old you are based on how much you value sleep, right? My three-year-old Myron, I have to trick him to get to sleep. Hey, buddy, you wanna go read a book? Yeah, hey, let's read upstairs. Hey, since we're upstairs, let's get in bed. Hey, are you feeling tired? Let's turn out the light, right? There's this whole kind of process I have to do to try to get him to sleep. You do not have to do that to me. You just tell me, Matt, you can go to sleep. Thank you, I'm out, right? Because I enjoy sleep. That's how you know you're getting old. Like, ah, a nap is awesome. When you're a child, you fight naps, you hate them. But here's what they say happens when you sleep now. Your brain takes your day and then files and organizes it correctly. If you are not getting adequate sleep, your brain is never able to take the chaos of your day and during the darkness of night, file it, organize it, and even forget things. So your brain will purposefully say, that is not important information. I'm going to get rid of it so it doesn't clutter up the desktop. I'm gonna file this stuff away, get things organized. Why? So you can launch well into the very next day. So what God is doing, giving us day and night here is a blessing. You're gonna need this. This is how things are ordered. This is how things work. I'm doing this for your good. So God saw that it was good. And I see, yeah, I agree. A good night's sleep is really good. You're gonna find that whenever God something, says something is good, it is always for human's benefit. That what God calls good makes life for you and me good. It's a very, and, and we'll point this out more and more, anthrocentric book. It's very human-centric. Chapter one is no doubt God, but from then on, it is God and his interaction with humans. So God is creating a good place for humans. Um, by the way, by the way uh, there's this thing called biblical theology. It's probably my favorite way of looking at the Bible. And it's the things that you see that go all the way, they stretch long, long through the Bible. And they, I think they're the most important things. This dark being changed to light is a theme in the Bible. So Isaiah the prophet picks this up in Isaiah chapter nine, verse two. I'll read it for you. It's a brilliant little text. But he sees down again the tunnel of time and he sees something that happens. And this is what he says. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness. Does that ring a bell at all? Sounds like Genesis 1, 2. On them has light shone. That is quoted by Matthew in Matthew 4, 16, picking up this same thing. And then listen to this. It's 2 Corinthians Chapter four, verse six. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. When did he say that? Genesis one, verse three. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What you see, and there's a whole bunch more of them in the Bible, what you see is it is always God who calls light into darkness. That is a mandate of God. When there's darkness, only God is the one that's able to get rid of that darkness, separate out the darkness and bring light to you and me. Have you ever been in a really, really dark spot? I mean, physically dark. 
like in a cave or something. Growing up, there are these caves you could go in, you can't go in anymore. They're called the Marble Mountain Caves out Fish Hatchery Road. And we would go up there all the time and, and explore around and hike into them. And, and you turn off your light in those caves, it's unbelievable. So my favorite story, I wasn't actually on this trip, but my older brother, my little brother, Neil, and my brother-in-law, Clyde, all headed to the Marble Mountain Caves like at 10.30 at night, 11 at night. And they're walking to the caves, they're checking them out. And they only had one flashlight. Yeah, Heavily's have never been known for really preparing for things. So they've got one flashlight. And then my brother, for some reason, and, and the Marble Mountain Caves are like, you'd go in this big kind of room, like massive room, like almost the size of this right in here, uh, a little truncated. And then, then like through a little sliver and then a big massive room again, like they were so cool. And they're way back in it. And Chris, for some reason, he just, he just had this in him. He took the flashlight and he just threw it. Yeah, so it bangs around, psh, breaks. And then uh, to hear them tell how each one of them responded is really fascinating. My little brother was young at the time, he was like 14. He just freaks out. He literally grabbed a hold of my older brother's leg like, like, a, like, a, ba- like a little kid would and held on and was just drugged through the cave like screaming, oh, we're going to die, we're going to die, right? Neil is just angry. He's like, why did you do that? He's just mad, mad, mad. Clyde, who is the nicest man in the world, is like, hey, hey, it's going to be fine. Let's just wait for the sun to come up and we'll, we'll get our way out. <laughs> They're like, buddy, we're in a cave, right? So they made it out, by the way. They're all fine and alive. Uh, my older brother's with God in heaven, but uh, dark. There's nothing more freaky. If you've ever been in a really dark spot in your life, man, there's nothing more terrible. And so the Bible clearly begins to lay out this, this theme. God is the only one that can bring light into your life. He's the only one. When you realize that, what it does is it really humbles you. And when you're praying for the salvation of a loved one, you realize, you know what? I can't turn the light on. I have to pray. I have to ask for the only one that can turn a light on. I can share and I can partner, but ultimately the only way light is gonna shine into this person's heart is if God calls it in there. Wisdom in life, like there's a lot of decisions we have to make. Should I move here? Should I take this job? Should I marry this person? Should I, right? There's a lot of kind of dark, vague, misty things that we're like, I don't know what to do here. Well, guess what? There's one that turns the light on. So we continually do Proverbs 3, five and six. Man, we lean not on our understanding, but in all our ways, we acknowledge him saying, God, direct my past, bring light to my life. Help me to know what to do right here. Praying, asking, seeking. And then here's the coolest thing about it. The Bible says this, it's Revelation chapter 21, verse 23. And it says this, in the heavens, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no sun. Do you know why? Because God is the light for all people. So our consummation is no more of this mist, nor this darkness, no more of this what? No more of this un, kind of misunderstandings. There's no more of that anymore. Instead, in the new heavens and the new earth, we have illumination and we have light and we have understanding and we have direction and we know how things work correctly. Oh, happy day that will be. Paul puts it this way, that right now I look through a glass darkly. Man, that's half of life, right? Maybe 99% of life, it just feels like a glass darkly. But then face to face, happy day that will be. That is the consummation. 
But now we have access. We come boldly to his throne. We receive help in our time of need. Take advantage of that. If you're in a dark spot, pray to the one that calls light into darkness. Pray. Ask. God, speak, change, bring light. So that's day one. Day two, verse six. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. This word expanse, if you've studied this chapter at all, it's translated a bunch of ways. One translation is a solid dome. There was just this kind of solid dome over the earth uh, because there is connotations of that in this word. Another one is there's a vapor canopy kind of around the earth. And that vapor canopy uh, was like the greenhouse effect on earth at that time, that it, it provided like this rich environment. And there are some things that you, you, you've got to marvel at. Like uh, they have found woolly mammoths in Siberia with like jungle vegetation in their mouth. Have you read about that? Like that's crazy to me. Like number one, you're in Siberia. How is there jungle vegetation way up here? And number two, what happened to these creatures that they would be frozen so fast that they didn't even, they didn't even have the opportunity to swallow their food? Like, that's crazy to me, right? Have you ever been in a really cold, cold spot? In Alaska, I worked uh, at a cannery and we had this, it was an ammonium uh, freezer. Uh, I, I, don't, I guess ammonium, it freezes a lot lower. You would go in there, you had to put on this massive suit, like big time suit, you would spit. Everyone had to do this because you would spit. Your spit would hit the ground as a solid. That's how cold it was. Just unbelievable. You would take entire salmon and they would just be flash frozen like that. Just an incredible, incredible freezer. Uh, crazy. Every once in a while, the ammonium would leak in there and you would just see people running out of there. Like, have you ever cleaned with ammonia? Imagine it spraying you. Like they would run out of there. I, I, I don't know why OSHA wasn't up there protecting us as college kids, but you know, this cold, like something like that, like a flash freeze just came over Siberia. So what was it? Was it the flood? I don't know. There's some mystery stuff. Here's what I believe it is. Uh, there's a Bible called the Net Bible. It's on the internet. Uh, if you want to read a very, very interesting Bible and it has... Uh, translation notes on the side. It's a phenomenal resource. It's for free. It's called the Net Bible. The Net Bible says it is the air pressure between the earth and the clouds. That's what I believe it is, that that's what's being signified right here. Not a solid dome, not necessarily a vapor canopy, but it's just the air pressure that's in between the earth and the, the clouds. And so what God is saying right here is real simple. I'm going to control the water. You know how important that is? What happens if you have too little water? You have a drought. What happens if you have too much water? Some people face that here in Southern Oregon. I've seen some 
Very, very fascinating driveways. Like, I don't know how you're getting up that now, bro. Like ditches dug in people's driveways. You get floods. So what God is saying is I'm separating these two and I'm going to control them. And you have from this point forward, this term that's often used, it's called the windows of heaven were opened. That is a term that God's saying, I'm controlling how much water comes down. I'm in control of the rain. That's why Elijah, when he wants to close the windows of heaven, who's he pray to? God gets coming from right here, that God is controlling those things. He meters it correctly, right? So this is the atmosphere. And if you've ever studied our atmosphere, like it's an amazing thing. It filters out UV. Um, If the balance wasn't right, oxygen to nitrogen to other stuff, like if there was a little bit too much oxygen, guess what would happen to us? What's on the back of an oxygen tanker as it goes down the road? Flammable, right? You go to start your fire, you blow up. So it can't be too high. If it's too low, we don't live. We don't exist anymore. Um, there's, they say on Saturn, perhaps you read this a couple of years ago, they sent a probe into Saturn. And they said this because of the methane, the carbon and the lightning that most likely when it rains on Saturn, it rains, anybody know? Diamonds. Yeah. Which you think, hey, that'd be so awesome. Really? You would trade all your diamonds for a glass of water. That's what you do. Because water is much more. You want to invest in something in the 21st century? Water, I'm telling you what, water is going to be it. Because water is really, really important. So God is saying, I control this resource. And I'm making sure it's coming down in the right amount through this dome. All right, so we'll do one more day and we'll save day four because it takes a lot of work. Day three. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, all right? So it was already there. You can see that right there. The deep was covering some some ground. So we know from verse two, there was already something there. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth and the waters that were called together, he called seas. And God said that it was good. The word sea there means any body of water. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind and trees bearing fruit in which was their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening And there was morning, the third day. God does two things on day three. He's getting warmed up now. The first thing he does is he separates out the the oceans and the land, like, right? He, he, He brings the land up, separates it out. So now that there is some kind of a location for the coming vegetation, If you read about the balance on earth of ocean percentage versus land percentage, you know how important that is as well? Like the oceans cool our planet. If they were just a little bit smaller, guess what happens to the entire planet? It gets a lot hotter. The percentage of salt water to fresh water is really important because salt water freezes at a much lower temperature and boils at a much higher temperature. So if it was all fresh water, 
What happened is there'd be these massive, massive amounts of water at the, at the caps. It would, it, would, it would destroy our earth, essentially. It would get all wobbly and off balance because of the twist on it. There'd be too much weight up there. So they're like, all these things are precisely made by God. It's really awesome. Even the, the best part about having a lot of oceans is the beaches, right? I mean, how cool are beaches? So you've got God balancing stuff here. I'm gonna have this much land. I'm gonna have that much ocean. I'm gonna balance these things so that humans can flourish. There's a biblical theology on seas though. The sea in the Bible almost always stands in the way of humans doing well. You have it in verse two, right? Hovering over the face of the deep. You can't really live in the deep ocean. You have it in the flood. The flood comes and it really stands in the way of humans flourishing. It's a bad, bad thing. We'll talk about that. Chapter six, seven, eight, nine. Then you have in Revelation, um, excuse me, you have in the Exodus, you have the slaves finally escaping from Egypt, running their tails off. But what stops them from getting to the promised land? The Red Sea, right? We have in Daniel chapter seven, this prophecy of these empires coming out of the sea and they're really wicked, terrible, terrible, terrible empires that crush and destroy humans. That's why in the book of Revelation, the consummation of all things, it says, in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no sea. There's nothing that's gonna inhibit you and me from reaching our potential. Isn't that really cool? Because if you're at all like me, I'll wake up some days or I'll go through my day and I'll just feel like, man, I did not attain my potential today. Man, I did not do what I needed to do today. Man, ah, oh, why, right? There's this angst in us like, ah, oh, I could do more, I could do better. What's holding me back? There's a sea, if you would, that holds us back. And in the new heavens and in the new earth, there's no more sea. There's nothing that inhibits you and me from flourishing to our full potential. It's very cool. Then notice the trees, this vegetation. Notice it says it's a very particular kind of vegetation. Uh, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit. Who eats those kind of plants? Humans do. We'll find we're actually all vegan. In the beginning, I know some people are like, what? That is not paradise. Uh, we were all vegan to start with. We'll get to that next Wednesday. Um, what that means, well, okay but we are all vegan. So this, this vegetation is particularly suited to humans. It's what we eat, right? Grains, if you would, and fruit, because that's what we would have been eating back then. I believe prior to this, there was all kinds of other vegetation. Grass that you and I can't consume, that we can't eat certain things. So whatever animals were existing, they ate that stuff. Right here, God in the hot audits is saying, I'm going to create vegetation that is beneficial for humans. Plants, that humans can eat, and trees, fruit trees, that humans can eat from. So there may have been grass and redwoods before this. Sure, but we can't eat those things. So this is, once again, preparing a good place for you and me to dwell in. So God creates all these fruit trees. Isn't it amazing how many different kinds of fruit there are? Like, I've used this before, I'll use it again. Like, to me, when I think about God's care of me, food is one of those things I just say, Man, God, you really cared for us. Because I had this dog named Chloe for 10 years and she was a golden retriever. 
And so day one, I went to go get food for Chloe and I went to the store and there was this big bag of dog food and it had a golden retriever with a really shiny coat, like running, like looking happy. And I thought, well, that's the right kind of food for her. Has a golden retriever on it. So I bought that food. For 10 years, my dog, Chloe, ate that same exact kind of food. 10 years, same food, every single day. Could you imagine if God did that to us? Like just a bag of man food, just has this happy man on it going, yeah. And that's all you ate every day and until you died. Miserable. God did not do that. Man, he gave us variety. Do you know that there are over 7,500 varieties of just the apple? If you were to eat one different apple every day, it would take you 20 years just to sample all the different varieties of apple, right? Like you don't have to eat a red delicious. Aren't they the worst apples? I call them red deceivers. They look good, but they're always like mushy and tasteless and the skin is way too thick. Man, there's all these other ones, right? Like the, there's so many good apples, 7,500 of them. What is that? That's God saying, humans, I want you to love life. I want to create a really, really good place for you. So I'll end by saying this. I hope you've seen what God is doing is, is he's really focusing down on humans. I want to create a splendid place for Adam and for Eve to live. It's very human-centric. We'll see that even the sun and moon, God gives them a function and that function is for signs and times. Now, animals don't care about signs and times. Who cares about it? You and I do, right? For some reason, time is built into us. POWs that are held in a prison camp, what do they do on the wall? Etch in a day, right? Etch, why? There's something born into us. Well, it was right here. That is, this thing is very, very human-centric because God wants his kids to live in really good places. Well, Matt, I am not in a good place right now. I'm in a terrible place. It's dark, it's chaotic, it's formless, it's void. What do I do? We'll get to this great story about Isaac, where Isaac was in a bad spot. He had no water. So he dug a well. And the first well he dug, he called it strife because these people came and started fighting over it. So he moved and he dug another well. And the same thing happens there and he calls it contention. And so Isaac keeps digging these wells, trying to find like, oh, oh, I need to flourish somewhere. And then he finally digs a well and he calls it Rehoboth. And that word means there's room for me. I take a lesson from Isaac. You keep digging. You don't give up. You keep digging, praying God shine light here. Keep digging into community and relationships and purpose and mission. God, I know there's room for me. I know that your design is Genesis 1. Yes, we war against an enemy. Yes, we war against our own flesh. Yeah, there are these battles, but God's ultimate design for you and me, and we see it culminate in the new heavens and new earth, is I want you to dwell in a good spot. Now, it's not going to be paradise. not going to be perfect yet, but there can be a Rehoboth for us. You just keep digging. Keep praying, keep seeking, keep knocking, keep asking, keep saying, God, I want mission. I think one of the most important things for humans to flourish is for us to be doing verse two. Taking the chaos that we see around us and saying, God, use my talents and use my abilities to out of chaos, step by step, day by day, to create paradise for someone else. Because that's what God does. So we do that through the 
gospel rescue mission, through Carmen Serdan, through Uganda, as Jason Folkstad is doing it, through the Pregnancy Care Center, through, there's a million ways, Joe's place, we just keep saying, God, use me in these ways. And what you do, I believe, if you keep digging, is you find your Rehoboth, because God has it for each of us. There's a Rehoboth. He wants a good place for us to live, because that's the kind of God we serve. And that's the big to me story of what you see in Genesis 1 and 2. I want a great place for my kids. So Jesus, I pray for your kids who came here this night, carving out time to learn your ways and your word. And I pray for those that feel like maybe they're in dark, deep water right now, overwhelmed by it. We pray to you the one that lets the light shine into darkness. We pray that you would give light to that person, to those people even this night, that they would know the way to walk, that they would have wisdom, that they would have answers. Lord, even tonight, may you give it to them. I pray for those that are working hard, trying to find the Rehoboth, Lord. I ask that they would not grow weary in well-doing, but like Isaac, they'd keep digging keep digging, knowing that your plan for your people is a good place. I pray for great mission in this crew, that we would be those, those that do verse two, that we would be image bearing you in that way, just as you prepared a good place for someone else. Lord, may we be doing that for others, for those that are disadvantaged, for street kids, for hearts with a mission, for safe families, for all these avenues, Lord, that we can take chaos in people's lives and bring order through your word. Now give us that kind of mission, Lord. So may your light, even this night, shine into our hearts, into darkness, I pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.